dedication is ended, Nazarites must go to the entrance of the meeting tent and give their offering to the Lord. Their offering must be a one-year-old male lamb that has nothing wrong with it for a burnt offering, a year-old female lamb that has nothing wrong with it for a sin offering, one ram that has nothing wrong with it for a fellowship offering, a basket of bread made without yeast, bread made with fine flour mixed with oil and wafers with oil spread on top, and the grain offerings and drink offerings that are a part of these gifts. The priest will give these things to the Lord, and then the priest will make the sin offering and the burnt offering. He will give the basket of bread without yeast to the Lord. Then he will kill the ram as a fellowship offering to the Lord. He will give it to the Lord with the grain offering and the drink offering. The Nazarites must go to the entrance of the meeting tent. There they must shave off their hair that they grew as a dedication to the Lord. That hair will be put in the fire that is burning under the sacrifice of the fellowship offering. After the Nazarites have cut off their hair, the priest will give them a boiled shoulder from the ram and a large amount and a, and a large and a small cake from the basket. Both of these cakes are made without yeast. Then the priest will lift these things up to show that they were presented before the Lord. These things are holy and belong to the priest. Also the ram's breast and thigh that are lifted up and presented belong to the priest. After that, the Nazarites can drink wine. These are the rules for those who decide to make the Nazarite vow. They must give all these gifts to the Lord, but they might be able to give much more. If they promise to do more, they must keep their promise, but they must give at least all the things listed in these rules for the Nazarite vow. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me, please? Lord, it is our desire that we could give ourselves fully to you. For we know that whatever we give to you is for all eternity. And whatever we give to lesser purposes, well, those things will pass away. Lord, you have planted in our hearts eternity. You've given us a space in our very being that is suited for things of heaven. And yet we live most of our time distracted by silly things that are passing away. We so often pass up the gold for the glitter. Lord, we pray this moment that as we look into your word, which is the eternal word of God, we pray that we would see things of eternity. During this time, may we give our minds and our hearts fully to the hearing of your word. 
May you be honored and glorified in all things. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning I want to talk about consecration. That microphone's making me nervous, you know. I want to talk about consecration and I want to talk about holiness. I want to talk about holiness and consecration. Consecration is an act or a rite or a ceremony or a sacrament or a vow or a resolution by which we separate ourselves from ordinary purposes to some holy purpose. We dedicate babies. We ordain deacons and elders. Those are acts of consecration. In those ceremonies, vows are made, setting aside those individuals and their lives and their service from ordinary purpose to some holy purpose. But those aren't the only kinds of consecration that we know. When we commit our tithes and offerings to God, we set aside that money from ordinary use for a holy use. When we consecrate a building or a sanctuary as a church, we set aside that space for a holy purpose. But what about other parts of our lives? Can we consecrate them too? When we have a conversation with someone that we've just met on the train or in the line at a grocery store or on the telephone at work, can we consecrate that casual encounter to a holy purpose? Can we quickly say to God, Lord, take this conversation and own it. Take control of my heart and my lips as I speak with these people. Let this be a holy conversation. Can we do that? Do you think that God would honor that prayer? Do you think that a casual conversation can become a holy thing? And if a casual, throwaway part of our day can be consecrated to a holy purpose, what about the big things in our lives? What about our careers or our marriages. Secular people, of course, also have careers and marriages. They do the best they can. They hope to live a happy life. But can Christians have careers and marriages that are consecrated, that are, in fact, set aside for a holy purpose? If you drive a truck if you provide medical services, if you help people with their finances, if you build houses, if you teach children, can you consecrate your labors and your skills for a holy purpose? Well, of course you can. Our ordinary work lives can be consecrated. And I think that if we're interested in evangelism and sharing the gospel, there may be no more potent witness than doing our regular job like a Christian. As the Apostle Paul says, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters. So is your life consecrated? Is your life's work Consecrated? Do you pour your life and your skill and your time and your hard work 
not only into meeting the secular demands of that job, but is it part of your labor for a holy purpose? It can be. And what about our marriages? Can our marriages be consecrated? Now, Roman Catholics uh, consider marriage a sacrament. We Presbyterians don't. But I think the difference is mostly a matter of words. Certainly Presbyterians and Roman Catholics agree that marriage is holy, that marriage between a man and a woman is a visible sign of Christ's unbreakable union with his church. The Apostle Paul quotes Genesis when he says, For this reason a man will leave his father and his mother and be united to his wife, and the two shall become one. That's the quote. And then he goes on to say, This is a mystery. But I'm talking about Christ and the church. We Presbyterians don't call marriage a sacrament because Jesus didn't command us to be married. Marriage isn't for everybody. But Jesus did command his followers to be baptized and to celebrate the Lord's Supper. And so we call those sacraments. But even if Presbyterians don't call marriage a sacrament, we do believe that it is holy. We don't think that the bride and the groom are holy. They're sinners just like anyone else. But sinners are invited to enter into this holy institution, which is a wonderful thing. It's, a, it's in fact a mystery. Of course, it's the same with the church. The church is a holy institution, but the only kind of people who are invited to join a church are in fact sinners. So is your marriage consecrated? And I'm not asking, are you married to an angel, because I know that you're not. I'm asking, have you set your marriage aside from all the common use, the secular use, and it has those uses, have you set it aside as a holy relationship? Secular marriage, according to the laws of the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, is a legal contract that guarantees certain rights and safeguards the transfer of property. Civil marriage forms a partnership, a two-person corporation with all of the rights and privileges thereunto appertaining. The whole fight over same-sex marriage, by the way, which is now legal in 34 countries and uh, representing 17% of the world's population, the whole fight over same-sex marriages was about whether or not any two people, regardless of their sex, could form this little two-person corporation that we call a marriage. And at some point, people in the Western world at least said, well, why not? It's just a civil contract. Why should we care who enters into the civil contract? It is possible to have a marriage that is nothing more than a civil contract, a contract that we enter because it's to our advantage, a contract that we leave when it no longer works for us. It's possible to have that kind of marriage. That's how some of us treat our jobs, by the way. We take a job because it's a good deal for us, and we leave when we find something better. That's the difference, by the way, between a job and a vocation. There's a difference between a gig and a calling. I didn't come to Huntington Valley Presbyterian Church because you guys offered me the best deal. 
I came here because I believe that God had called me to be your pastor. My job is to shepherd you. I serve the sheep of this flock, but I work for Jesus as my boss. And by the way, if I didn't do it that way, this job would be hell on earth. I don't know if you know it, but there is a terrible turnover rate for pastors. They don't last long. Pastors are burning out. They're getting chewed up. I got a mailing from our denomination recently saying that 40% of pastors considered quitting in the last two years. We had special prayer for that issue at our last presbytery meeting. It's a real problem. Pastors get chewed up. They get burned out by their congregations and they leave the churches feeling discouraged and scared. Two weeks ago, I had lunch with a former pastor in my office. He had left the church. He now works as a school teacher. He doesn't attend church anymore. The experience left him with a sour taste in his mouth. Now, I don't know all of the circumstances in his life. I don't know what's happening with all of those pastors who are throwing in the towel, but I have a theory. My theory is that the root of the problem is that pastors forget that they have a calling and not a job. A besetting sin of pastors is that they are people pleasers. We live and we die on your praise. When you love our sermons, we feel so good about ourselves. But when the sheep begin to bawl and when the sheep begin to buck, pastors question their own worth and their own callings. It's not hard to do. The past two times that I met with the Stogie Society, by the way, which I love going to. All of you should be in a small group Bible study. I love going to the Stogie Society because I don't have to run it and because I get to be just one of the guys. The last two times that I met with the Stogie Society, my prayer request was that God would increase my love for you. And I do love you. I love this church. And I can't serve you if I don't love you. But I need to love you more than I do. That's my prayer request, that God would help me to love you more. But that is not the same thing as praying that I would please you more. In some sense... The work of a pastor is like any other job. It's like a secular job. It requires certain training and skill and aptitude. It requires diligence and hard work, just like any secular job. But for my work to work, for my work to mean anything, for my work to count, and not just for this week but for eternity, for my work to be worth anything, to be worth my effort and to be worth your money, it must also be consecrated. It has to be a calling and not just a job. And by the way, I don't think that my position is special. I think that any job can be a consecrated job. I think no matter what kind of work we do, we can do it unto the Lord, not just pastors. I think pastors who are getting chewed up and burned out are working their hardest to please their congregations, but they may have forgotten that they are working for the good shepherd, that he's the boss. And if we get that right, I think the rest of it will fall into place. That's my theory, at least. That's the word of Dan. That's not the word of God. 
We can treat our jobs as mere money-making ventures, or we can treat our job as a consecrated labor. And there's a huge difference. We can treat our marriage as a civil contract, or we can treat our marriage as a consecrated covenant, and there's a huge difference. We can live consecrated lives. And by the way, I just have to be honest with you that for the most part, I have treated my marriage as a convenient contract. I love being married. I like having a wife. I got married because I wanted children. I wanted children since I was in my early 20s. And when I was out there dating, I was looking for a woman who looked fertile and who was good with children. And that was Ava. She's built for babies. And she had a degree in early childhood education. And she gave me three kids and she did a great job raising them. But how often have I viewed my marriage which should be the most important relationship in my life, how often have I viewed my marriage as something that could be consecrated, as something that could be more than just ordinary, that could be given over to a holy purpose? Well, maybe in some moments I've thought that way, but the truth be told, my track record is terrible. Here's the funny thing. If you treat your marriage like a holy relationship, even though most of marriage is just the ordinariness of life, the day-to-day work of keeping house and raising kids and paying bills, even though most of marriage is just ordinary stuff, when we treat it like a holy institution as Jesus intended, then all of that ordinariness begins to glow with a holy light. And I think every part of our lives can be like that. I think every part of our life can be consecrated. How we work, how we talk to people, how we relate to our children, what we eat and drink, how we treat our bodies, how we use our money, what we do with our free time, how we interact with our cell phones. All of life can be consecrated. In Numbers chapter 6, we have a set of rules regarding a certain kind of consecration. It's called a Nazarite vow for a certain period of time. Typically, it was for 30 days, but sometime it was for life. An individual would live according to a special vow. They would make certain promises to God, and during this time of consecration, they would be marked in three ways. First, they would not drink any wine. They wouldn't even eat grapes or raisins just to make doubly sure that they were staying away from anything that could intoxicate them. Now, the Bible is very clear that it is a sin to be drunk. Nothing good ever comes from being drunk. God did not give us a huge brain just so that we could starve it of oxygen and make ourselves stupid. When we're drunk, we are less than what God made us to be, and that offends the image of God, and we act like animals. But that doesn't mean that the Bible forbids the use of alcohol. You know, 
One of the great fears of a pastor is that he loses the pages, right? <laughs> because I don't know what I wrote last Thursday, okay? If you're thinking I do, I don't. I just got the pages out of order there. That doesn't even mean that getting a little happy while drinking is forbidden. It does not mean that. In Psalm 104, uh, we have God being praised for being the maker of wine that gladdens the human heart. And wine doesn't gladden the human heart just because it tastes good. Something else going on there. But in the Nazarite vow, even that is set aside. Not because the wine is a sin, but because wine can be a distracting pleasure. A withdrawal from ordinary and permissible pleasures is one way of allowing our attention to be captured by God. God often speaks in a still small voice. And if we are living in a dance hall, if we're spending all of our time being entertained, if we are holding our cell phones for six hours a day like a twitching addict... It can be really hard to hear the voice of God. What we see in the book of Numbers is that God is building for himself a holy nation, a separated people, a consecrated nation. He takes Israel, a bunch of no-name slaves, out of Egypt. He gives them his law. He begins to teach them the first lessons of how they're going to be the people of God. And God all does all of this in a wilderness. For 40 years in a desert, there's nothing there to distract them. In Egypt, rich, lush, powerful, beautiful, filled with natural and man-made wonders, it was hard to hear the voice of God. But out in the wilderness, not only do we hear God's voice, we also find ourselves moment by moment dependent on him for our very lives. In Egypt, there, there was fish and wine and cucumbers and melons, but in the wilderness, there was only water and manna and an occasional quail. And guess what? In those conditions, God got their attention. Riches has this way of closing our ears to the voice of God. There is a reason that poor people are more religious than rich people. And so if we ask God to prosper us, we need also to pray that he never make us too rich. That he not make us so rich that we no longer need him. The first part of the Nazarite vow was to step back from permissible pleasures of life for a season of consecration, for a season of closer listening to God. And the second part of the Nazarite vow was to not cut the hair. That seems a little strange to us. But it was a visible sign to other people in the community that something special was going on with this person. If your hair is uncut, people eventually notice. You might recall Samson. He was a Nazarite, and cutting his hair was the beginning of his trouble. There's a word in Hebrew for an unpruned grapevine. They're called Nazarite vines. They look messy. John the Baptizer was a Nazarite. He was the epitome of wild and woolly. So the Nazarite vow involves some kind of public recognition of this separated status. And last, the Nazarites 
are to take special care to not become ceremonially impure by coming into contact with the dead. We talked a little bit about this last week. This whole idea of ceremonial uncleanness is very strange to us. Here's the thing that you need to understand. It has nothing to do with being well scrubbed. It has nothing to do with hygiene. It has nothing to do with disease control. Perfectly healthy things like menstruation and having sex with your spouse made you ceremonially unclean. This is a category which we do not have as Christians, but it is a category that reminds us of the givenness of our condition, of our fallenness, and of our mortality. It is simply a condition that we find ourselves in and it has to be dealt with. And much of the law of Moses was designed to deal with ceremonial uncleanness and that was a training ground for dealing with the deep effects of the fall. Effects that we, in fact, feel even before we begin to sin ourselves. Look, even if magically you became sin-free Tomorrow, you're 100% sanctified, totally sin-free. You would still have the problem of fallenness because you're living in a body that dies. And so you still need God's salvation to rescue you from your body of death. That is foreshadowed for us in the Bible's teaching about uncleanness. So the Nazarite vow consecrates the individual, typically for 30 days, but sometimes for a whole lifetime for some special purpose. That purpose is not actually identified in our reading, but we have this phrase that's repeated two times in our reading. You have given yourself fully to the Lord. You've given yourself fully to the Lord. Some promises made, God, I promise to do this for this amount of time, and while I'm keeping my promises, I'm going to observe the rites of the Nazarite vow. That's what's going on. And the Bible dedicates this full, long chapter to this practice. And in case you are thinking that all of this is really weird, please keep in mind that this practice continued into the church in the New Testament. It is not something that passed away with Jesus. It is legitimate for Christians to take a Nazarite vow. Acts chapter 21, four companions of Paul were under a Nazarite vow. Paul says it's legitimate. He offers to, to pay, pay the cost of, of their offerings, a perfectly acceptable practice. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul is giving counsel about abstaining from sex inside of marriage for a period for the purpose of prayer. He's talking about a Nazarite vow, a temporary consecration of ourselves for a holy purpose, setting aside permissible pleasures in pursuit of something higher. It is okay to be a Christian Nazarite. You can be a Nazarite and follow the Nazarene. Now all of us Christians are on a journey of holiness all of us Christians are on a quest. When we signed up to follow Jesus, we embarked on a pilgrimage of purity. Our pilgrimage is foreshadowed in the book of Numbers. Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 where he writes, These things happened to those people as an example to us. They were written down to teach us. 
Because we live in the time when all these things of the past have reached their goal, okay? So what's going on in the book of Numbers is about our lives, which is why we study it. This is why God wrote it down and why God preserved it for us. God took his people out into the wilderness. He gave them his law. God's law is a guide to the holy life, and God's law is an indictment of our sin. In God's law, we see the mind of God, we understand his heart, we know what's important to him, and in God's law, we also see our lives reflected back to us, and we discover that our lives are corrupt and that they're broken and that they're distracted and that they're deeply needy. And the biggest lie that we tell ourselves is that, you know what, I can fix this. There is a great false gospel in our Age, it is preached in all of the channels of communication out there, the gospel that we can fix ourselves. You can do it. You've got this one. You just need a little more willpower. Or the false gospel that says, you're okay the way you are. You don't need to change. You just need a little more self-love. Or the false gospel that says, vote for me and enact my legislative program and the government will save you. Lies, lies, lies told by big, fat liars and false prophets. The Bible says that if we will humble ourselves, God will lift us up. The false gospel says that what we need is more pride and more self-love. The Bible says that if we repent, the Lord will forgive, the Lord will heal, the Lord will restore, the Lord will pour the oil of gladness on our heads, the Lord will save. There is no other Savior. There are no other Messiahs. The Bible tells us that God will make the weak strong and that in our weakness we are made powerful. There is no earthly power that can save us. No earthly system or political organization will rescue us from ourselves. The Bible says that we, the church, are a chosen people. We are a royal priesthood we're a holy nation God's special possession that we may declare the praises of him who called us out of darkness and into his wonderful light we have been set apart we have been consecrated are we living that consecrated life Having been rescued by God's great love for us, we individually have the Holy Spirit. If we are born again, we have the Holy Spirit. If we have the Holy Spirit, we bear the fruit of the Spirit. And the fruit of the Spirit includes love and joy and peace and forbearance and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. Spirit-filled Christians are full of love. Self-giving love, love that doesn't ask, what can you do for me? Love that asks, what can I do for you? Spirit-filled Christians are full of joy. They're full of real happiness. They're full of steady happiness, which bubbles over even when the circumstances are hard. Spirit-filled Christians are full of peace, peace that passes understanding, peace that the world does not understand. We are not unsettled. We're not anxious 
because we know that God holds our future and that our future is good. Spirit-filled Christians show forbearance. That means that we do not get easily offended. That means we do not get our noses out of joint. That means that we do not insist upon having our own way. As children of God, we are big enough to be gracious with other people. Spirit-filled Christians are kind. And that kindness comes out of our strength. It is small people, mean-spirited people, spiteful people who are weak and afraid. We are strong in the Lord and have a supernatural confidence, and that allows us to be kind to all people. Spirit-filled Christians are full of goodness. The goodness just pours out because the goodness has been poured in because God has filled our cup with his goodness we have goodness to share with others spiritual Christians are faithful we keep our promises we don't renegotiate our contracts or abandon our vows we don't say what have you done for me lately we're steady because we've been grafted into the true vine and the true vine is the same yesterday today and forever spiritual Christians are gentle And we're gentle because a gentle word turns away wrath because we know that our weakness, because we know our own weakness and that weakness allows us to sympathize with the weakness of others. And finally, spirit-filled Christians are self-controlled. We're not easily provoked. We do not overreact to every alarm because our confidence is not in ourselves. It's in God who has all of the power, who holds the future, who determines the fate of nations and of empires. This is our endowment. This is what we've been given. This is the power. The Holy Spirit is the power for us to live consecrated lives. Are we doing it? Every part of our life is changed by the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives. I know that the old man continues to cling to us and to keep us from perfection. We wrestle with this thing every day. And it's precisely because of this ongoing wrestling that's part of the Christian life that we are called at times to seasons of special consecration. Times when we just turn away from the other stuff that we're doing, and give ourselves fully to the Lord. Every part of our life, of course, already belongs to God, and yet so often we're holding it back. What are we afraid of? What, are we think we're going to lose out? Everything that we give to God comes back to us a hundredfold. And so I think we as a church need to be a consecrated church. I think we as the followers of Christ need to be consecrated. I don't know what's going on in your life. I know what's going on in my life. And so I wonder this morning if there are things that you need to just turn over to God and that you need to give up for God I wonder if there are parts of your life that you need to say, you know what, Lord, I, just, I want to give this over to you. I want to, I, I, want to give, I want to give my job over to you. I want to give my, my marriage over to you. I, 
I want to give my, my relationship with my kids over to you. I want to give my hobbies over to you. We won't make you cut your hair if you do it. You're allowed to. We have freedom as Christians, but it's not a requirement. Why don't we spend some time in prayer and then the musicians will continue to lead us in worship. Let us pray. Lord God, would you take our lives and let them be consecrated only to thee. Lord, we confess that we have kept from you things that belong to you. We've tried to live our lives apart from you. I don't know why, because we've learned those hard lessons before. Every time we do that, it doesn't work out. Lord, this morning I pray that you would hear our prayers as we commit ourselves to you. As we commit our futures to you. Lord, we work so hard on so many things. I, Help us to labor as though we're working for you. Lord, you have given us so many gifts and skills and talents. You've given us wealth. And so much of it we hold back for ourselves. Help us commit those things to you. You've given us people in our lives, our family, our colleagues, our neighbors. Lord, give us eyes to see them the way that you see them. May we treat those around us the way that you want them to be treated.
Lord, you deserve everything that we are. It's foolish to think that we can reserve part of our lives to ourselves. It all belongs to you. Give us the joy that comes from commitment to you. Give us the peace that comes from consecration. Give us a purity in our heart and in our motives. Help us love one another. Help us love you fully. Be honored and glorified in our life, Lord. Lord, we know that this will be a blessing to us. But we pray it for your glory. And we pray it in Jesus' name, who taught us all to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.